Let me pray. God, our Father, we thank you that um, you speak to us by your Spirit through your Word. Uh, we thank you that you've been speaking to us as your Word was read. And we pray that you continue to do that now as we uh, consider this passage together. Uh, we pray that you help us to uh, see the things that you want us to. Um, that ultimately that we will see Jesus and love him and trust him and obey him. Uh, and live lives uh, that um, are worthy of the calling uh, that you have called us with. Uh, so work among us by your spirit we pray. Uh, may your spirit who gave us these words empower me to uh, preach them properly uh, in his strength. Uh, and may he work in each of our hearts. Uh, we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. If someone asks you, where do you see God's greatness, what would you say? Uh, you, you may speak about creation. Uh, God made everything that exists, seen and unseen. And you look at the wonders of the universe, you think, wow, God's pretty great. Or you may speak of signs and wonders. God has done miracles in the past that have been clearly and reliably documented. And, and some of them have been pretty great, like the one we read about this morning. Where do you see God's greatness? Well, today, we will see God's greatness ultimately in his great work of rescuing people. Uh, we will see an incident in which God shows his greatness in this way. Uh, an incident which points to an even bigger one. For we will see God showing his greatness by saving his servant who called to him. God shows his greatness by saving his servants who called to him. Uh, those of you who have been uh, uh, following this series may remember that, that, that Daniel was a Jew uh, who had been taken by the Babylonians uh, from Jerusalem. Uh, in his exile, he'd risen to one of the highest uh, positions in, in, uh, of responsibility under his Babylonian masters. Uh, and God had been uh, using him uh, in the imperial court to, to bring his word uh, to the Babylonian kings. First Nebuchadnezzar, and then we saw last week to Belshazzar. And Nebuchadnezzar had learned in Daniel chapter 4 that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will. Remember that? And Belshazzar ignored this in Daniel 5 to his own destruction. Well, at the end of the last chapter, at the end of chapter 5, we read that Darius the Mede received the kingdom. He received the kingdom. You see, <coughs> yes, the armies of the, the Medes and the Persians defeated the Babylonians in battle, but in the end, he took over the empire because God gave it to him. Darius received the kingdom. And so now in chapter 6, uh, we see one of the things that Darius did when he took over. He, he set up a new system of administration. Uh, he appointed 120 officials called satraps to rule under him. And those satraps reported to three presidents. And the reason for this arrangement in verse 2 was so that the king should suffer no loss. Right? Uh, Darius knows that you can't assume that people are trustworthy. You need to hold them to account. And so he's got the king, he's got three presidents under him, and then about 40 satraps are reporting to each one of them. And Daniel, in his 80s, is one of these presidents. But Daniel, in the words of verse 3, 
became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. In fact, he was doing so well that the king planned to promote him above the other presidents and set him over the whole kingdom. And that is where the office politics really started to kick in. The other presidents and satraps tried to find grounds for complaint against him that they know how to take care of rivals. Lah. Surely there's some skeleton that's in his closet. Surely he's got some dirty secrets. Surely there's something he's got to hide. But they couldn't find anything. Even though, verse 4, they sought to find ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, they could find no ground for complaints or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. And friends, can I just say what a great example Daniel is at this point to all believers. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the same thing could be said of each of us? That our enemies can look and look and look and search and they can't find anything against us because we've always acted in ways that are exemplary. We've always been faithful, never gone against conscience, never gone against God's law or the law of the land. You cannot assume people are trustworthy. But we want to be people who really are. And that's what Daniel was doing. And his enemies were frustrated. But they were also smart. You don't become a president or satrap for nothing. And they soon they, they figured out the one point that they could use to pit Daniel against their king. One spot they could manipulate him into appearing to be disloyal. They say in verse 5, We cannot find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. And so they hatch an evil plan. Now these groups of presidents and satraps agree to, to go to the king with a proposal. And they do. This is what they say to the king in verse 6. O king Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. And now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. So that's what they want to do. The rationale we don't see here. Maybe they explain, they say to the king, or maybe it's good for national unity, or you know, strengthen his position as monarch, or some other political reason. But, but whatever the reason they give, they present the proposal as unanimous from all his leaders, from the presidents, the prefects, the satraps, the counselors, the, the governors. Which can't be accurate, isn't it? Uh, because we know that at least Daniel was one of the presidents, and he wouldn't have agreed to anything like this. But, but that's what they tell the king. Now, how can the king refuse if all his leadership hierarchy think it's a good idea? Maybe there's a little bit of pride there as well, because huh? he becomes the object of everyone's worship. Right? But for the good of the empire. Uh, whatever the case is, in verse 9, King Darius signs the document and the injunction. Sometimes, the, enemy of, the enemies of God's people Take a virtue and make it into a vice. And they can change the law of the land so that the good things you previously did are now forbidden. 
The conspirators realized, didn't they, back in verse 5, that they would not find grounds for complaint against Daniel unless they found it in connection with the law of God. And so they want to pit the law of the Medes and the Persians against what they think is the law of Daniel's God. People in the West are doing that at the moment. They change anti-discrimination law so that Christians who want to maintain a moral stand are accused of fomenting hate and then punished. And it's going to get worse. People like Bernie Sanders in America are already saying that if you believe that Jesus is the only way to God, you are so bigoted that you are not fit for public office. People like Tim Ferron in the UK are forced to resign because they realize they can no longer hold to a Christian position and still be the leader of a mainstream political party. And in our own country, we've got an NGO leader calling for evangelicalism to be banned when he doesn't even understand what evangelicalism really is. And you've got a major newspaper publishing his call. The world can redefine virtue as vice and then persecute you for it. It's an old trick, and they played it against Daniel. So how does Daniel respond? Well, if it was me, I would just be tempted to just, just pray God quietly. Lah. I could still speak to God in private and no one would know. But, but look what Daniel does in verse 10. Daniel knew the document had been signed. He went to his house where he had windows in the upper chamber open towards Jerusalem gets down on his knees three times a day and prays and gives thanks to God as he had done previously. No change in plan. Daniel knows that God is the real ruler of the nations. He has lived through all the events we've read about in the last five weeks of Daniel 1-5. to He knows that the Most High speaks he knows that he saves, he knows that he rules, he knows that he humbles those who exalt themselves above him. He knows that Yahweh is God and he is on the throne. And the best and wisest thing to do when his life is in danger is to bring his petitions before God. Daniel's praying just as he was before, alone in his room, and yet in such a way that it's obvious that he's doing so. Now, he's not being like the Pharisees in the New Testament who, who pray publicly so people admire them. No one's admiring Daniel. Lah. He's going to get killed for this, right? Uh, but it's okay. The Most High is with him. He's praying towards Jerusalem because, well, that's where the temple had been. We're not told to do that now because Jesus is the real temple. Our prayers are directed through him, not through a physical place. Gee, uh, Daniel gets down on his knees to pray, or, or literally he, he kneels on his knees. Now, it doesn't mean we always have to kneel to pray. We've got examples of people standing in prayer as well, but, but kneeling is a good posture for prayer. It's a, it's a symbol of a gesture of humility before God, and we would do well to consider Daniel's example without making it a requirement. Daniel prays formally three times a day. This is the only reference in the Old Testament to this practice, so it seems to be a, a personal habit of Daniel's rather than a set formula. 
And again, it's good to develop personal habits of prayer every day to, to make sure it's part of our daily rhythm. And how we do that, of course, is a personal thing. We'll change from person to person and time to time. But at the end of verse 10, it says that he prayed and gave thanks, which is actually something we're all called to do. We are all told that when we have troubles, we should pray. And that like Daniel, we should do it with thanksgiving. Philippians chapter 4 is coming up on the screen. Here's what the Holy Spirit tells us through Apostle Paul. He says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Is there something worrying you? Is there something worrying you? Something on your mind? What does it say? Pray. Tell God about it. Ask Him for your request. Let your request be made known to Him. And do it with thanksgiving. You can always find things to be thankful for. Daniel, in his situation, could find things to be thankful for. And of course, we're especially thankful for the grace God has shown us in the death of His Son. And as you do that, verse 7 says, The peace of God, which surpasses, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That is, whether you understand what's going on or you don't understand, what is better than the understanding, that's what the surpasses mean, it's better than understanding, is God's peace. Actually knowing who God is, who you are, being able to bring these things to Him, being able to trust Him with these things. And this peace guards your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. It stops you from falling away from Christ Jesus. It stops you from going away from Him. Always turn your anxieties into prayers. Daniel prayed even when it was forbidden. Sometimes we fail to pray even when it's not. Well, Daniel's enemies have been waiting. They, they knew the times when he would pray. And so, one day at the predicted time, they get together and they catch him in the act. Remember how back in verse 4 that they, they couldn't find a cause, they couldn't find a cause for complaint against him. Well, they finally find it in verse 11 when they found him making petition and plea before God. Daniel is trapped. And so now they approach the king. And they say to the king in verse 12, O king, uh, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into a den of lions? You know? They know he did, lah. They just pretend and they're confused. Did you, did, you, did, you, did you do that? I'm a little bit confused. Because, because you know, isn't that evil? It's evil. Right? And the king, of course, affirms that he did. Uh, he says, the thing stands fast. According to the law of the Medes and the Persians, it cannot be revoked. Ah, so now they bring up Daniel. And they describe him in verse 13, and look at how they describe him. They call him Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah. All right? They're not referring to him as your trusted president, you know, the guy you want to make the senior president. All right? yeah. One of the exiles from Judah. 
And this Daniel, they say, pays no attention to you, O king. You see, they're trying to drive a wedge between Daniel and the king, trying to make it personal. They're, they're un, 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 unfairly trying to make Daniel's piety some kind of thing that he's trying to insult the king. And then they say, he also pays no attention to the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Checkmate. It's not only Daniel who's trapped, it's the king who's trapped as well, isn't it? Daniel has broken the law, and they've got the king exactly where they want him. He's in the position that he has to take action against Daniel. But the king knows Daniel's a good man. He knows that he's a faithful and reliable administrator. He knows that he is not seeking to insult him or do bad to him. He realizes this is a political move. He's smart. And he knows that he's been played. But what can he do? Oh, verse 14, the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed. And he, he set his mind to deliver Daniel. He's trying to find a solution. He wants to save Daniel. He set his mind to deliver Daniel. Daniel. And so he works on it. He labored until the sun goes down to rescue him. He's trying to find a loophole, trying to find a way to reverse the decision, to make it not apply to Daniel. He wants to save him, but these presidents and satraps, they've got it covered. And they come by agreement to the king in verse 15. No, O king, it is the law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king established can be changed. And so now the king has got no choice left. They've, they've got him. Interesting, isn't it? He's the only one that people can pray to in this period. But he cannot save his friend even from his own law. Verse 16 says that the king issues the command. Daniel's brought and is to be cast in the den of lions. Now the word translated den there is actually the word for pit. One and a half thousand years before this, Joseph had been put in a pit by his brothers. And God had rescued him and made him the ruler of Egypt. David, a few hundred years before this, had called upon God to redeem his life from the pit. And those psalms that speak of that point forward to to Jesus and they would become prayers for God to rescue him from the grave. But now Daniel is to be thrown into the pit of lions. He would suffer capital punishment under the king's law. He would go down to what would almost certainly be his grave. To be torn from limb to limb, to be mauled and eaten. He would go down to the pit and would never see the light of day again. But as he goes, the king speaks to him. And he says something really remarkable at the end of verse 16. Have a look at it there. The king says to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. What an interesting thing to say. 
I know you serve your God. You don't just serve me, you serve your God. You do not hide that. And I hope that your God overturns my decision to punish you and rescues you instead. I could not save you, but I hope that He can. In other words, I hope that He's stronger than me. What an interesting thing for the king to say. Well, Daniel's cast into the pit. A stone is brought in verse 17 and, and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king seals it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords so that no one can tamper with it. And then the king goes home. And in our story, we, we, we leave Daniel in the den and we follow the king home. And there in the palace, the king is so upset that he, he, he cannot eat. He, he spends the night fasting. Can't do anything. Verse 18 says there, No diversions were brought to him, whether they be work or food or people. And he can't sleep either. His sleep fled from him. The king is up all night. He is restless. He is distraught. And then at the break of day, at the earliest sign of the dawn, he gets up. And he hurries to the den of lions. And as he approaches, he calls out in verse 20. He calls, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Remember, he knows that Daniel's not just the king's servant, he's the servant of the living God. The greatest king in the world at that time could not save Daniel. But can God? You see, this is the climax of the narrative. That's the question. And this question that he asks, that's the, that's the question this whole story answers. Can God save Daniel who serves him from the pit? Listen again to the anguish cry of the most powerful man in the world. Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually, being able to deliver you from the pit, from the lions. Would you expect an answer? In any normal scenario, you would expect there to be a deathly silence in answer to that question. Or at the very most, a low growl of satisfied beast. But listen to the voice that the king hears in verse 21. O king, live forever! My God sent his angels and shut the lion's mouth. And they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king. I have done no harm. Wow! Imagine what joy that the king feels when he hears those words. God has done what the king has failed to do. God has saved Daniel, his servant. Daniel is alive. And so the king in verse 23 is exceedingly glad. He commands that Daniel be taken up out of the pit and Daniel's taken up out of the pit and no harm is found on him, not even a scratch. Because... At the end of verse 23, he had trusted in his God. But then, that's not the end of the story. Lah. 
because now the king turns to bring justice to those who had tried to kill Daniel, to the people who had manipulated him by, by getting him to command the execution by lions. He, he knew their game, and now he, he's not going to stand for it any longer. And so he decides to give them a taste of what, well, what they wanted him to do to Daniel. And so in verse 24, he commands, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought. They are cast in the den of lions with their children and their wives. And if they hope that the reason that Daniel was saved because the lions weren't hungry or were actually just pussycats, well, look at the bo- what happens there. Before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. And in the aftermath of all this, King Darius sends a message across the empire. He writes, verse 25, to all the people, nations, languages, and he says, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. God of Daniel is to be respected. Why? Because he did what Darius could not do. He saved Daniel from Darius' law. God is the one who really is on the throne. And he showed his greatness by saving his servant who called to him. And so Darius goes on, for he is the living God enduring forever his kingdom shall never be destroyed his dominion shall be to the end he delivers and rescues he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth he who has saved daniel from the power of the lion you see darius learned the lesson same lessons that king nebuchadnezzar learned god rules his kingdoms forever god saves even does miracles to save people God is greater than the greatest king because he is able to save his servants who call to him. And isn't it just like God to show his greatness by his salvation? But Daniel wasn't just saved, he was also exalted. And after his rescue, he was restored to the place of of leadership in the kingdom. And so we read in verse 28 that just as God made Daniel prosper in the Babylonian Empire, he continues to do that in the Medo-Persian Empire during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Daniel is God's servant who is saved and exalted. Now, of course, God's saving of his servant Daniel was actually just a picture, isn't it? Just a shadow of a much, much greater salvation, of a much greater servant. Because like Daniel, Jesus was the victim of the jealousy of evil men. Like Daniel, Jesus was treated unfairly. Like Daniel, Jesus was innocent, blameless before God and man. Like Daniel, Jesus trusted God and called out to him in prayer because he knew that God is able to save his servants who call to him. Pontius Pilate, like Darius, knew that the prisoner was innocent and tried to get him off, but ended up having him executed anyway. Jesus, like Daniel, was given capital punishment. Like Daniel, he was sent to the pit, the grave. Daniel was sent to die. Jesus really died 
and went to the grave. And like Daniel, the stone at the mouth of the tomb was sealed with the seal of government. The punishment had been meted out, and there would be no expectation of return. But God is able to save his servants who call out to him. And he shows his greatness by doing that. And so just as Daniel was brought up from the pit, Jesus was raised from the dead. Like Daniel, his resurrection was discovered at the crack of dawn. And like the rescue, Daniel was restored and prospered. The risen Jesus was exalted to the right hand of God to rule the nations of the world. God shows his greatness by saving his servants who call to him. He rescued Daniel, and ultimately, he rescued his son. And friends, that great God who is able to save his servants who call to him is able to save us. You see, the biggest danger that we are in is not the danger of being eaten by lions. We were facing the greater danger of hell itself, of being under God's judgment for eternity. As was the case with Daniel, there was a law that condemned us. But unlike the case of Daniel, it was God's law and it was perfectly just. Our sin against God was so big that, so bad, that we could never finish paying for it. And so our, our punishment would have been an eternity of alienation and disaster. And that would have been perfectly just. Darius tried to rescue Daniel from his own law. And that's exactly what God did for us. He loved us so much that he sent us his son, the Lord Jesus, who lived the perfect life under the law. And then died for our sins in our place. Taking the punishment that the law demanded for our sins on our behalf. So that if we cry out to him as Lord... If we're united to him by faith, then it's our sins he bore and our wrongs that he paid for. It's our punishment that has been meted out completely. And we can be free from the penalty of sin demanded by the law. God is so great that unlike Darius, he is able to save his servants who call out to him even from his own law. So if you're someone here today who hasn't been saved, then can I urge you to cry out to God through Jesus. He is the one, the only one, who can save his servants who call to him. And he has shown his greatness at the cross of the Lord Jesus, by which you can be saved. For those of us here who are already trusting God for our ultimate salvation in Jesus, there are still things we can look at on a smaller scale. When things go wrong, when you fall into trouble, who do you run to first of all? We often put our hope in people who have power, don't we? And we forget who is the real king over all the world. Now, God may use all kinds of people to help you. That's, that's fine. Or he might have plans for you that are different from what you're hoping for and praying for. 
And of course it's good to elicit help from others where help is needed. That's, that's right. But our first point of call should always be to God. We should bring our problems to Him. Ask Him for wisdom to deal with them and who else to involve after that. Remember Philippians 4.6 Do not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication let your request be made known to God. Let's come to Him and trust Him in all the trials that we face. And finally, let me remind you that when Paul wrote that verse in Philippians, he was in prison. And he didn't know for sure whether he would be executed or released. It turns out this time he was released. But another time later he would be executed. God can save his servants who call out to him. But he doesn't always do it in this life. We know he will do it in the end. That we know. So like Daniel and like Jesus, we can trust God and do what is right. If evangelicalism is banned, then well, so be it. We will trust God and do what is right. If Christian prayer is banned, well, so be it. We will trust God and do what is right. If we are wrongly accused and treated unfairly at work because we belong to Jesus, then, then so be it. We will trust God and do what is right. And look forward to the day when our Lord returns. God will bring justice in the end. In 2 Thessalonians 1, we read that God will bring justice to those who persecute His people. Uh, we see that God in verse 6 considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his mind. God will show his greatness by saving his people and he shows his greatness by, being, by bringing judgment on those who, who, like Daniel's enemies, persecute his people. The judgment and salvation, they, they always go together. They're two sides of the same coin. We saw that in Daniel. We'll see that at the end. God will bring judgment but the promise is not that he'll do it now. He does it at the end. And at that magnificent end, God will show his greatness by saving his servants who call upon him by raising them from the dead. So that like Daniel and like Jesus, we will come out of the pit, out of the grave, unscathed. We will be raised. And like Daniel was not only raised, but exalted and prospered in the empire. And like Jesus was raised from the dead to the sit at God's right hand in glory. And those who trust in Jesus will not only be raised, but be glorified with him. And we will be able to love him, enjoy him, and serve him together. Permanently safe from sin and all its consequences with God as our God and we as his people. God shows his greatness in saving his servants who call to him.
forever. How great indeed is our God who saves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you show your greatness in saving your servants who call to you. We thank you for saving Daniel and showing that you are so much greater than King Darius. We thank you for saving Jesus and showing that you are so much greater than all the forces of evil. And thank you for your promise to save us on that last day and to glorify us with your Son. And as we wait for that day, please help us to trust in you and your goodness and greatness. Help us to honor you, to do what is right, and wait for vindication at the end. Thank you for the privilege it is that we can, that we can call upon you in prayer in these matters, and not only in these big things, but in everything. So please help us to do that day by day the small things and the big, as we look to you as our ultimate Savior and King. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.